Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Hello again, Dr. Bill Choby. Uh, we're talking about liberty in America, past, present, and future. Uh, the whole basis of uh, this discussion over the past number of uh, months has been about the role of, of government and personal freedom in our lives. Uh, remember, we spoke about when might is right, we live in bondage. When right is might, we live in freedom. When right becomes wrong, we live in chaos until either might or right becomes in control. If might comes back in, we're in bondage again. Freedom comes back in if everything's done according to what's right. <clears throat> this seems we've demonstrated over the past several months that this is something that's been going on from the very get-go. Uh, and what the difference between freedom and liberty is that freedom, you can do what you want. And liberty is you can do what you want within the confines of some type of code or some type of restraint that's freely accepted. So here we are. We're talking today about liberty and America's future. Past couple of sessions, I've gone through recent history about why we are where we are today with the $31 trillion debt. We have chaos in our schools. We have uh, seemingly a double standard of justice. We have a president who is elderly and obviously not of a full capacity to be the most powerful man in the world. We have crisis after crisis coming up after him. And so to think of where we're going, obviously, the majority of Americans believe that we're going in the wrong direction. So what direction shall we go in? Well, let's take a little look in the past. If you recall in the first part of uh, some of our discussions, we talked about some of the great uh, thinkers of, uh, of time going back to the ancient Greeks, going back to the ancient Hebrews and Egypt and Moses and and the uh, the Exodus and such, but we talked about Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, R Rousseau, Locke, Jefferson, Madison, and just a number of the few that made major contributions as the development of the idea of liberty uh, came out of uh, the bondage of power into more and more to that of the will of the people. Uh, and eventually expressed in, in uh, a constitution with separation of power of government. It's what we see and what we live by today. Our constitution is the supreme authority of the land. And if you want to understand the significance of having a supreme authority, just look at the coronation of King Charles recently. If you had noticed how elaborate that had been and how re they often repeated that there was service, service, service that he was to provide as his role as the king. And interestingly enough, he was coronated or the crown was put on his head by a representative of the church. So you can see the, the moral thread here uh, in even modern day the UK. But the purpose of all this uh, ceremony and, and ritual with the crowning of King Charles was because at one time the king was the law. The king represented to England or the UK what our Constitution represents to us. So it has that great uh, authority and, and uh, 
just by watching the the coronation and and the ritual and and the repeated emphasis on service and the the fact that the king would not abuse his power should be also that respect should be given to our constitution but it seems today that progressives and people who have different uh, views of what the moral foundation of our country is uh, tend to ignore parts of the constitution that they don't agree with and try to uh, change us using that same very constitution only with their bent on understanding of it currently we have a supreme court where there appears to be more people there uh five to four who uh, possess a originalist kind of idea of how the constitution should be interpreted but increasingly we're having this this creeping idiocy that's coming into it with uh, such as the, the last uh, appointed uh, supreme court justice didn't even know what how to explain whether she was a woman or not i mean that, that's just patently absurd and it's just a slap in the face to the very uh, the nature of our constitution and to all the people who have struggled and died and were harmed and, and worked tirelessly to, to create a document that was as fair as possible under the uh, confines of the human intellect. And some we get some Supreme Court justice who's promoted by a Mr. Magoo president who really doesn't know what he's doing half the time to simply could not acknowledge what it is to be a woman. It's just unbelievable that we've come to that point, but that's where we are. And if we look back at the history of so many of the great civilizations throughout the world, you know, they all failed for some reason or another, but you know, it's not as if it was the type of government that they had that caused them to fail. I mean, it, it was really what was going on at the same at the same time as these failures. They, there was always the the question of uh, uh, who's in control, you know, uh, how much money they're spending, um, how they're treating their people. You know, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome. They uh, we can follow this stuff even with even in more contemporary times. We look at the you know, the Soviet Union. When we look at what happened over in China, and, and the millions of people have died with them, with them trying to enforce a, a form of government. And yet here we are. The American Republic has lasted for more than two centuries, and the, and apparently that with the, the strength of a, an unchanging constitution or a very slow to change constitution. But at the same time, they're the fallibility of, of people and the things that people do um, can cause even the best laid plans of government to fail. And what I'm referring to is, is uh, the moral foundation, the things that people guide their lives by, the personal liberty. I mean, what what, what uh, parameters are there on the human mind or the human heart if they've taken away the, the basic... The, uh, understanding of what life is and uh, what it is for liberty or the pursuit of happiness or or the respect for others, uh, basic things such as in the Ten Commandments about stealing or or lying. Uh, these are things that same uh, sorts of things happened to all those other previously failed uh, longstanding governments. Well, they're, they're present with us today. But the key of it here, and we go back again to Plato and Aristotle, the key of it is the dissolution of the family. You know, without uh, the hierarchy of family, I mean, it sets the pattern for how people see themselves in the world. And it's not until they have to go through enough experiences uh, other than that to change their view of the world is that they'll continue to operate on those values throughout their lives, good or bad. 
but it goes down to the, the uh, breakup of the family, the basic social unit, as to who's in control, who's in charge, what roles mothers and fathers play, and um, and how that is reflected at large in the society and in the government and in the world itself. So when you have governments such as we've had, and, and is in the past, the, the ones that failed, Rome and uh, uh, et cetera, it had to do with breaking up families, number one, whether it be through uh, through forced uh, nature of, of actions, like through you know sending people to war or breaking up the family, or or whether it's uh, the uh, lack of uh, of opportunities where fathers cannot take care of their families, and that leads to breakups, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, all those sorts of things. But really, at the, at the base of it lies one thing that's consistent throughout those communities. Huh? It's throughout those societies is that it's the growth of government that ultimately destroys the family. You know, the ancient Greeks actually had um, public health insurance, if you will, or, or you know, basically uh, you know, they were providing for welfare for health care back in ancient Greece. And these ideas are not new. They're just rehashed and given new terms, and they make them sound, you know, innovative and all that sort of nonsense. They're making all the same promises about how government can take care of people better than they can themselves, and of course, the family's broken up, and then it leads to all different kinds of difficulties. Uh, marriage is no longer an institution that's honored; it's uh, it's denigrated. There's there's immoral behavior all over the place, and people just sort of lose their sense of uh, of uh, self behavior control and uh, their own personal liberties. But let's take a look back here. Let's go back to uh, Alexis de Tocqueville when he came and journeyed to America. He's a Frenchman, and he's a, he's a writer. Uh, he came here to see what was going on with our jails. And he was. this was after the French Revolution failed, and he wanted to see what was working in America. So he spent a lot of time visiting all the jails in all the different states in the country at the time, and he wrote, this is, I think it was 1847 or so. He says, this is quote now, I search for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and anchored whalers. It was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world of commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her success? He concluded, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. American Revolution was based upon the moral foundation of the Judeo-Christian concept of, of law and justice. The French Revolution failed because there was no moral foundation. In fact, they tried to re rewrite everything. They were going to make the week ten days and everything on a decimal system, and and then in, in the end, you know, they beheaded the King Charles, uh, and they uh, beheaded the uh, uh, his wife, uh, and it came down to where the, the the guillotine was a common thing. But what was was the most uh, remarkable part of it was that as it became bloodier and bloodier. It became known that it was said that as one is facing the guillotine, that he would say to the executioner, but I'm on your side, chump. So you see, it's just wanton chaos and, and just 
unrestricted violence is what it eventually comes to. That's what that's what ruined the French Revolution. And here you have a man came over here in the uh, 1830s and 40s looking for what made us different in France. And he found this. And what he found was really the core, the core of the moral foundation of, of America. If you remember, we talked about the common sense document and how it if you read it even today, you'll see that it's a very moral, very Judeo-Christian oriented uh, document full of values. And, and it was that was uh, became like the, the bestseller of the American Revolutionary Times. And it's from that moral foundation that the Black Brigade or the or the uh, ministers who spoke about the freedom and liberty from the a biblical standpoint that gave the courage to those people to endure and to fight and eventually succeed in the revolution uh, separating us from Great Britain. It's always like that. You cannot subdue a Bible-believing people. That's well known. It's one of the things that's protected America for so long. They say America's safety belt is America's Bible belt, and I believe that. People will go the, to the death. They'll They'll be martyred in defense of the Bible, but you, I dare say you won't find that happening very often without any other uh, and any other reason than uh, to believing that God has a, pur- a purpose and a plan for them and that eventually there's something beyond this life. It's that belief that gives people the strength and courage to endure that has given us our freedom and our liberty. Remember when John F. Kennedy, well, I do, maybe you probably don't, but when in his inaugural address, he said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you could do for your country. Now think about how that's changed since JFK. Now it can be the other way around. Ask what you, your country you can do for your country. It's ask what your country will do for you or do to you, I should say. All because of growth of government. Remember, this all started with the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887. Uh, and how it grew the, the the bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government, and how it's just grown out of control. And now we see them. I think one of the latest things was that the Biden administration wanted to shut down a Catholic hospital because they had an eternal flame, a little candle in the in the chapel. They were going to shut down the whole hospital and the hospital system because in the chapel, where where people often go to pray when they're uh, their friends or relatives are in the hospital and then deadly sick. They go there and it gives them assurance and it gives them comfort. And yet there, the Biden administration was going to shut the whole thing down over the presence of a candle in a glass uh, ball of glass bowl. That's government run amok. That's government that goes against everything that set this country onto the path of liberty that we have. Think of that. And that's that, and that it was through a bureaucracy that that was done. You see, the growth of bureaucracy is very secular. It's not based in any kind of uh, uh, moral foundation. And the checks and balances aren't there. As I mentioned before, they have executive, uh, judicial, and legislative powers all within their control. And while you have your congressmen and senators out there looking to raise money for the next election, these uh, bureaucracies are like fire and forget. Once they're started, they have their own life. The bureaucrats are basically untouchable. There's no way you can get rid of them with the civil service laws we have today. I, I can't even remember where anybody was ever fired in, in any of the bureaucracies. And yet they're horrible. And they incre- increasingly creep into taking away the liberty and the freedoms that we have. Okay, so what are we going to do about all this? Now, we see the growth of, of uh, with the government. We see that the spending has gone out of control. They come up with these crazy um, 
uh, crises that uh, they they create crises in order to have these uh, opportunities to leap forward with the great advances of more and more and more government. But if you re- remember, as I said in some of the previous um, discussions, that the uh, the tax, the income tax, really is largely to contribute to this growth of government. But at the same time, every time we've had uh, income taxes reduced, we found that there was more money going into the, into the federal government. So you would think, well, you know, there was uh, uh, William Harding, Calvin Coolidge, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, the uh, and George W. Bush, and Donald Reagan, or sorry, Donald Trump. Whenever they lowered taxes, revenue went in. Okay, so there's more money going into the government coffers. Well, why can't they stay within that? Why do they keep growing it even beyond this extra government? At the same time, believing in more and more taxes is is the way to this uh, fairness. You know, they they say uh, everybody must pay their fair share. They never define fair share, but truly, when you know God's definition of fair share is ten percent, and if it's good enough for him, it ought to be good for Uncle Uncle Sam, as the song goes. So why is it that even though there's more revenue coming in, that they still increase taxes? It's because it's control. It's all about control. It's power and the control of people, which is the ultimate aphrodisiac, as once stated by Henry Kissinger. So what are we going to do about all this stuff? We see all this money coming out of there. They're they're printing all this money and, and dumping into the economy. And they say, oh, it's all for your own good. It's okay. You can sit at home during COVID. We're going to take care of you. Meanwhile, the trillions of dollars keep the ka-ching, 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 the, the national cash register. They dump this money, changing the behavior and the working patterns of people all across the country. So how does all this lead to uh, the problems we have today of inflation? Increase in prices and the, the rise of, uh, say, uh, uh, a gallon of milk or a gallon of gas. When it goes up uh, consistently because uh, of the, the pressures on the market, whether it be through people are buying more gasoline or milk or whatever, that's going to raise the price because it's supply and demand. If you've got 100 gallons of, uh, of milk on the shelf and you've got 200 people want milk, well, after a while, you raise the price, it gets to a point where people are going to say it's not worth that much more to me. I'll just go without until the hundred are sold at a fair market value. That's how the price of many commodities is determined by just how much people want it. If there is a surplus and nobody wants something, what do they do at the stores? They reduce the prices. They discount until it moves. It's not doing anybody any good sitting there just rotting away. That's how the market works. Whether you like it or not, that's the reality of it. And everybody does. Everybody does it, even the people who claim to be socialists. They look for the best price when they're going to buy something. That's uh, that's what keeps the economy going. That's what keeps the prices fair, is the pressure of people uh, to, by their decisions to buy or not to buy, whatever the price. When the government comes in and it creates money and dumps it into the economy, all of a sudden there's more money to be spent because there's more money to be spent by everyone, there, there's a greater demand for the, the limited supply of, of goods and services that are available at the time. Well, what does that do? It drives a price up. And that's where we get inflation. When you get the federal government, within the past uh, two or three years, we've watched our national debt drive rise by $6 trillion simply to put people, more people, into the bondage of government. You see, when... Let's take, for example, the price of gas rises. 
who's first to blame for that the most? The big oil companies. Well, <laughs> they make it seem like they're the bad guys because, well, you know, last year they made so many billions of dollars with the profits. Well, hello, if, you're, if you've got a worldwide business, that's not surprising to have that kind of profit. But they always blame the other guy. But the real problem is, is that when they're dumping all this money in there, they encourage people to use it. And people don't save the way they used to. And because you spend more, then the value of the dollar that you've saved becomes less. So if you saved, let's say, when I was 20 years old, if I saved a buck, I put a dollar in the bank when I was 20 years old. Today, that dollar might be worth 10 or 20 cents. So if I'm saving or, or trying to save money for retirement or for you know, Christmas or whatever have you, as time goes on in the times of inflation, that dollar is worth less and less and less. So if you think you've got a whole bunch of money put away for a rainy day and all of a sudden everything costs more, now that money that you used that you could have bought at the time that you saved it is now might buy a third or a half of what you uh, had, could do when you went to actually use it. That's inflation. Now, if it gets to a point where inflation rises so fast, and we've seen this in a, in a small sense with COVID, with the supermarkets and having empty shelves and things like that, that, that's panic buying. And people are hoarding. Well, they also do that with money. When you have people going into the panic mode, thinking, well, I know that this is going to cost $10 today, but tomorrow it could be 12 And then what do you do? You go out and you buy a 10 which drives up the price to 12 and then from there to 15 or 20, whatever have you, that leads to hyperinflation or inflation on steroids. And eventually it gets to a point where people are using up their, their regular paychecks. Now they're dipping into their savings and their retirement accounts, and they're running up credit card debts, borrowing everywhere they can, because instead of changing their lifestyle to suit the situation, now it's at a point where they're strapped and they have to become uh, very careful about just surviving. We see that today, and this came about through a lot of that COVID money was dumped out here and those COVID scares and the the the, uh, the way the stores were short of this or short of that. And all of this came about because the growth of government's control over people. Ultimately, governments who are out of control want to control people. This is where the might becomes right again. And with when that happens, you have a minority in, in power telling everybody what else to do, including what is considered to be moral and what is considered to be right or wrong. So what are we going to do about all this sort of thing? Well, I think over the course of the discussions that we've had, we know that there's there's something wrong here that uh, when it start, they started fiddling with the Constitution. But the, the promises of... Uh, you know, the liberty that we had under the original intent has been eroded through such as the 16th Amendment with the taxes, the 17th Amendment taking senators off the, uh, uh, having them elected rather than appointed. That was a major safeguard that we lost with that process. And then through the various other things that we've uh, come up with, all through the expansion and the, of the influence of government and now the weaponization of government through the IRS or through the FBI or the or DOJ, who seem to be able to pick choosers uh, or pick winners and losers in our elections. Uh, and then and also in light of the, the social media and the media at large, who's controlled by people who virtually you know, have little respect for our Judeo-Christian Christian traditions. And as, as uh, uh, Mr. Biden said that 
at the graduation at uh, Howard University is that white supremacy is the greatest domestic threat that we have. Well, you know, any reasonable person knows that that's a bunch of nonsense. So let's look at something that was said many, many millennia ago. This is a Cicero in 63 BC. Let me quote this to you. The budget should be balanced. The treasury should be refilled and the public debt should be reduced. The arrogance of officialdom should be tempered and controlled, and the assistance to foreign lands should be curtailed, lest we become bankrupt. What doesn't that sound like today? That's what I'm saying. There's nothing new under the sun. Here's one where Benny, the here's another quote by many of the uh, people who claim that their uh, their idea of this this social justice and this social utopia is uh, the father, which was Karl Marx. And he said this. A democracy is a form of government, not a form of government to survive, who only succeed until its citizens discover they can vote themselves money from the treasury, then they will bankrupt it. Sound familiar? (laughs) Now, by direct contrast, we had President Grover Cleveland when his quote was that, is it the responsibility? It is the responsibility of the citizens to support their government. It's not the responsibility of the government to support its citizens. Well, that's traditional American value that goes, <laughs> that's what we originally had. When we think about, do we have that now? We've got the same problems that Cicero was describing. And those people who claim that America's democracy is probably, it's probably the, the greatest insult to our republic possible. And, and I, I, I would, uh, whenever I hear anybody say that America's a democracy, it just, just infuriates me because there's nowhere in our original documents is that the case. America's a republic, just so we have in our, our Pledge of Reunion, our, our Pledge of Allegiance to our flag, the United States of America, and to the republic, not to the democracy, to the republic for which it stands. But the people on the left, just as they use the word pro-choice to sort of cover up the uh, or, or uh, take away the the their the grim realities of abortion. Instead of saying they're pro-abortion, they say they're pro-choice. Well, it's the same way with these people that they're they're white wordmeisters, and they will use language that appears to be oh that sounds fair. So they use the word democracy as our great democracy, as if that's some form of utopian uh, ultimate goal of all governments is to become a democracy. Well, you know what, what Karl Marx said about that: it'll fail. And we know it. Our founding fathers knew that democracies would fail. And if we ever had it here, it would be a problem. In fact, democracy does not exist in in any real form in our country, even though they say, well, if you have an election and and the person with the highest votes wins, that's democracy. No, it isn't. That's a mechanism that's often used in democracy, but it's not democracy. What they're referring to is a process of of election or process of decision-making that has nothing to do with the structure of our government. You can have a representative republic with with the, all the elections and everything we have and not have an ounce of a democracy in there. But yet they use that again and again. It's the apples and oranges thing. You know, they'll mix apples with oranges and say they're the same, but not, instead we have fruit salad. I'm getting off on a tangent here. Excuse my, I can we riled up a little bit. Here's what Woodrow Wilson said. We know Woodrow Wilson was a real progressive and a racist back in the, at the turn of the, the 20th century, but even he had some common sense. And he says, I quote, the history of liberty is the, is the history of limitations of government power, not the increase of it. When we resist, therefore, the concentration of power, we are resisting the powers of death 
because the concentration of power is what always precedes the destruction of human liberties. And he was a Democrat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, we can go on again and again and again. I can find quotes for you and repeat to you. Here's one by Tom Jefferson. The question of power there, then let us no more be heard of, of confidence of man, but bind him down with them from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. But wouldn't that be true if we had a, a DOJ that actually believed <laughs> adjudicating by the Constitution rather than who their buddies are? But um, so what are we going to do about all of this? Um, well, one of the problems is we have career politicians. We have career, career bureaucrats. Let's see what James Madison said about this. His Federalist 37, and he says, quote, The genius of Republican liberty seems to demand on one hand not only that all power should be derived from the people, but that those entrusted with it should be kept in dependence on the people by a short duration of their appointments, and that even during that short duration, the trust should be placed not on a few but on a number of hands. He later wrote in Federalist 53, it is a received and well-founded maxim that where no other circumstance affect the case, the greater the power is, the shorter it ought to be its duration. Those were original, uh, the original ideas. The Federalist Papers, by the way, if nobody, if you're not aware of that, is it's a very good read. But you can go back through. It's John Jay and, and um, uh, James Madison, and uh, there was another, I forget, but they, at the time when the Constitution was debated across the country, they laid out a series of letters to the editor under, under the name of Publius, uh, which was a reference to an ancient Greek uh, political philosopher. But it was they were anonymous. But and nonetheless, they laid out all these critical points of discussion as to the Constitution and how it, why it should be accepted as it was. And then these two Federalist quotes I've given you were some of the things that were in there. But it's a good read if you if you have a you know some time to really dig into it. It's a little it's a little hard to to take at times. So as all of this stuff is, uh, it, it can be very um, confusing. But nonetheless. The limitations of office, limitations of power, and limitations of the terms of office should be something that we should all strive to do. Now, there's a, the Convention of States out there, uh, which is uh, a group that uses the Article 5 solution, one that I've been proposing for many, many uh, years. The Article 5 solution in the Constitution says that the, uh, the Constitution itself can be amended either by votes of Congress, uh, which then sends it forth to ratification by all the states, and that what that means is that the states, the legislatures have to approve it by majorities and the ones you have to get three quarters of the states to agree on on something. And then it becomes a, a changed uh, constitution, a constitutional amendment. There's also another way. And this is proposed by uh, Alexander Hamilton. And it was a good one. It's that if uh, just as they did with the Bill of Rights, they had a convention where the people of all the states got together and said, look, we want to make an amendment to the Constitution. And they came up with a Bill of Rights. Well, they had some of them that they, they originally there were 12 that were proposed and 10 were accepted. It's the states got together. The states created the federal government. It's not the other way around. It's the federal government did not create the states. States created the federal government. And therefore, they have the power themselves to change what goes on in Washington of the Constitution. And that is called the Article 5 solution. 
So if the states get together, and they are currently, I think we are at 19 or 20 states who have already agreed to language on limiting the power of, of Washington, which includes limiting terms of office. And there's some other issues in there that are debated with uh, uh, balancing the budget. Uh, and, and there was, uh, you know, if that were to be to get to a point from 20 states that we have now to 34, that two-thirds uh, rule that applies, they can change the Constitution without the input of Washington at all, without the president. They just do it. Say, okay, here you go. And it seems to be we're headed that way. More and more people realize the federal government is ignoring the rights of the states. It's dumping mandates on them. And with the bureaucracies uh, helping out, the states feel further and further alienated from uh, each other and from uh, Washington itself. So part of this is solution, and, and this comes out of you know, all the chapters that preceded in my book. Uh, how do we get there? Well, the one thing we can do now is we can vote against incumbents. Well, you'll say there are some good ones in there. Yeah, but they're incumbents. And if they're in there long enough, they, they sway. They, they go off off the main track. I, I dare say there's many that have been in there for more than 10 or 15 years who haven't uh, forgotten where they're from. It's just That's just the swamp, the nature of the swamp. Now, we have to uh, look at an Article 5 solution uh, in Pennsylvania, particularly. We are close to getting this approval. Uh, we should vote for state candidates who propose the Constitution, uh, a constitutional amendment to limit the terms of office in the federal government. Uh, two terms or three terms for House of Representatives, two terms max for uh, senators. We should also uh, vote for state legislative candidates who propose this Article 5 solution to require a balanced federal budget, and even with a, a line-item veto for the president. And then another uh, topic that I think would be very helpful to, to preserving our liberty would be to require a fair tax for all, not being a flat tax. Currently, half the population doesn't pay taxes at all, and the majority of the income taxes come from the top 5%. Now, that doesn't seem to be very fair, but if you listen to... Uh, what the progressives tell you, that's just still not enough, which means it's never going to ever be enough because it's one of their talking points. And we also have to vote for candidates, state and national, and even local, particularly school boards, who are going to honor our traditional American values and our traditional American educational system and get all this, get rid of all this uh, transgender crap out of the elementary schools and uh, all this CR. Uh, uh, this this racial stuff that they're pushing in for kids, and this is all public uh, public school failures, and it all comes down from the Department of Education and the teachers union and all that. We saw that all come about during the COVID mess. We need to vote for candidates who are unashamed to say that they stand for American values, and you can find out this information to various voter guides put out by a number of conservative organizations out there, even for school boards, because that's how important it's become. So with that that in mind, I actually penned together a little amendment to, you know, for what it's worth. <laughs> it supposed to be the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And it could read as such. Section 1. No person shall be elected more than three terms to the House of Representatives, including special elections. And senators shall be appointed by the various state legislatures by a majority vote. Section 2. Income tax rates should be fair to all by requiring a flat tax for all the citizens. The annual budget must be balanced on the revenues, except in times of war. 
Any changes to this rate must be approved by Congress. The president may veto any portion of the proposed budget as deemed necessary. Section 3. The amendment shall be made inoperative unless it has been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states within seven years after it has been approved by Congress. So, <laughs> that's sort of... That's my uh, conclusion as to what we can do to preserve our personal liberties. And, of course, with the help of God, I don't see any reason why we can't. I mean, he's been with us on this from the get-go. We just have to turn away from our, our craziness and just to stop uh, ignoring all the signs that he's been sending our way to bring us back to get right with him, to reconciling with him and, and with our families and, and with our neighbors. Otherwise, we're headed towards what I fear is just uh, more and more control, more and more fear-mongering, more and more poverty, uh, more and more inflation, eventually war, and oftentimes war is brought forth as a way to shake up you know, America's nationalism and American pride and all that sort of stuff to get us out of the doldrums like FDR did with uh, World War II. Sad to say, I'd hate to see that happen, but... Uh, but that that becomes a possibility. We need to exercise our our rights, our freedoms, hard fought over the centuries, blood spilled, sweat, tears. Freedom is not free. When might is right, people groan in bondage. Are we groaning today? <laughs> We're groaning today because might is right. But when right is might, we're free. Remember what the good book says, where the spirit of Lord is, there's liberty. When we all live according to the Lord's standards, we're free. But when right becomes wrong, people suffer in chaos. Are we not there today? Till might becomes right, and the people groan in bondage again? Is that where we're going? These are decisions that we have to make every time we go into the ballot box Every time we have an opportunity to defend our great republic, I'd like to leave on one thing with you. Whenever anybody ever says that this is a democracy, correct them. And you correct them by asking them, prove it. And they can't. When anybody ever talks about these talking points, progressive talking points, about a fair share, ask them what's fair. You'll be surprised. They don't have answers. They just use these little mantras to confuse people, mix the apples and oranges together. Well, okay. All that being said, I would encourage you to, to look at my website, drbillchovybooks.com. There's more information there. Uh, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of my book. Um, there's a lot of references in there. There's a lot of uh, uh, internet links that'll take you to and down the, uh, the journey that I've taken to uh, prepare for this book and for these presentations. And um, I would I certainly hope that uh, that America realizes what we have is the most uh, successful form of experiment in government throughout the history of the world. And that's how quickly we can lose it, as demonstrated by the past couple of years. So there you have it, Dr. Bill Choby, speaking on Libertine America, past, present, and future. I thank you for your time, and uh, I hope you've gotten something out of this. Thank you. <laughs>